Let's have a word of prayer. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy name. For the sake of Jesus the Savior, amen. How many of you have heard that classic and traditional prayer before? Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful piece. You know, there's a, there's a lot to be learned from the literature of the church, not just scripture literature, but the liturgical literature of the church. Prayers and hymns and songs and writings. Um, if you have not been reading the Lenten devotional, uh, there are a lot of selections from that devotional from some of the classic spiritual writings of the past uh, 18 centuries. <laughs> and there's some beautiful material in there too. So. We're looking at some fantastic material in 1 Corinthians and Philippians this morning, and we are nearing the end, of course, uh, of our thematic study working our way through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, last week, we talked about the forgiveness of sin, and I'm actually surprised to see so many of back here this morning after we talked about sin. So take note of those who didn't come. <laughs> no. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about the resurrection of the body, and then next week when we're not meeting, we'll be talking in worship, of course, about uh, everlasting life. But this topic about the resurrection of the body uh, and that phrase, that statement, uh, has been uh, in some ways one of the most controversial, most talked about affirmations of the Christian faith, so I'm glad that we have a chance to talk about it today. Let's uh, read the 1 Corinthians and the Philippians passage. And then we'll pick up with, uh, with where we need to look at these things. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And then finishing with verse 58. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then from Philippians 3, 20 to 21. By the way, that was 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 50 and 58. I'm saying that partly for the sake of the recorded audience here. Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of His glory by the power that also enables Him to make all things subject to Himself. Thus endeth the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Okay, this is in some sense a very complicated argument, and in other ways it's really quite simple. But let's talk about the complicated part first. Let's look at the the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, the first letter we call it. There is a second Corinthians, and there's some evidence that second Corinthians is actually a couple of letters that are put together. But in first Corinthians... Paul is writing to uh, a Christian congregation in one of the most important cities of the Roman Empire. Corinth is not very far from Athens. Corinth is a port city. Corinth is the home of a major, major temple high on the hill uh, to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and to Diana. And Corinth is a very, very cosmopolitan, melting pot, mixing pot, if you will, of different cultures, different religions, different languages, different peoples. Everything under the sun is going on in Corinth. And so the church in Corinth is full of people who are coming from a Jewish background, but also many Gentiles. Many people who are bringing in their philosophies, their religions, their outlooks on life that are completely uninformed by the Jewish heritage from which Jesus comes and from which Paul speaks. And so the church in Corinth is struggling a whole lot to figure out who Jesus the Messiah is and what living like a Christian is all about. Corinth, the Corinthian letter is a pretty long letter because Paul is writing as a pastor and as a teacher to try to teach the correct faith, to try to teach people uh, what Jesus is about and the life that we're going to live after we learn to follow Jesus. And so he's been talking about issues and problems in the church. The church is divided up into factions because some people say, well, we follow the teacher Apollos, or we follow the teacher Paul, or we follow this other teacher. And they don't realize that they're one unified church in Jesus Christ. That's one of the problems Paul wants to talk about with the Corinthians. The church is very confused uh, about sexual morality. Uh, and that's a, that's a big issue in every human society. Remember I mentioned the temple to the goddess of love up on the hill. Um, the people in the church are bringing in their pagan ideas about uh, moral relationships, and Paul has to address those relationships. They're, con- they're confused about how it is uh, that they can move from a, a, a worship that's based on sacrifice to idols uh, and particular, the particular problem Paul talks about is eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. 
Now, that's not a huge issue in our culture for the most part today, but it's a big issue in that culture. That's one of the ways you worship the gods. Sacrifice animals, burn some meat, uh, and then you eat the rest of it, except some Christians are having a problem with that. Uh, Paul is talking about that issue. Paul is talking about worship issues and worship questions. Some of the Christians there are are uh, experiencing God in very, uh, what a Presbyterian would call sort of wild and crazy kinds of ways, infilling of the spirit and speaking in tongues and all kinds of, of uh, movement and, and uh, excitement and worship, and Paul's talking about what worship is all about. And of course, he ends that conversation with his very famous chapter on love, uh, talking about God's love. Well, the last issue that Paul addresses in the letter to the Corinthians uh, is probably the most important issue. And it's a question that everybody was talking about and a question that everybody still talks about. And it's the question of what happens to us when we die, okay? In some ways, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? We can talk with some degree of information uh, about everything else in life, really, because we're experiencing it all. But to my knowledge, none of us here in this room has yet died, okay? Sometimes you look like that on Sunday mornings. Uh, <laughs> praise God, <laughs> right? That's one of, the, one of the biggest of human questions. You know, we also ask the question, why are we here? How did everything get here? What's it all about, Alfie? Uh, but this question of what happens when we die is a huge question. And Paul is talking about that question at length in 1 Corinthians 15. I would love it if we had had time to read through the whole chapter, and I would encourage you to do that because it's one long, detailed argument. But essentially, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, look, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. I'm going to remind you of the message that you received, that you heard, that you believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived among us, that he died, he was in the grave, on the third day he rose again from the dead, and he appeared first to Peter, then to the disciples, and then to many faithful witnesses. If anyone asks you what the heart of the Christian gospel is, that's it. I know a lot of us want to say, well, God loves you. Yes, of course God loves you. But the unique message, the thing that Christians were saying, the Jews could say God loves you, right? And, and that's great. But the thing that Christians would say is this news about this person, Jesus, the resurrection. Okay? That's the gospel. Now, some of the Corinthians apparently the Corinthian Christians, were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, specifically resurrection of the body. And we're going to talk at length about what res resurrection of the body actually means. And so we have to understand a little bit about the philosophies and religions of the time, not the, the Jewish faith, but the other pagan philosophies, particularly Gnosticism. You've heard about Gnosticism before. G-N-O-S-I-S -S is the way that we would spell it uh, with our uh, version of the language. Uh, it is the, the, the word, gnosis means knowledge. That's where we get the word knowledge from. The Gnostics believed that certain people had special knowledge about all things. 
And if you had this knowledge, then you were golden. And the knowledge was that there is a divine being, if you will, or a divine force out there in the heavens somewhere, and that tiny little pieces of that divine force are brought into human bodies when we are born. And then when our human bodies die, that little piece of the divine force is released from the prison of the human body, and it goes back into perfect eternal glory with God, if you will. Okay, The Gnostics believed that all physical things are corrupt, that they're fundamentally bad, that they're a problem, especially the human body. And so when you die, this divine soul that you have goes back to be with the divine soul from which it came. All right? Now, there are lots of Gnostics today in the world, including in the Christian church, right? There are lots of people who think that we are created as, as soulful beings and that we have an eternal soul that automatically keeps on living after we die, okay? You, you might have some of that idea in you. We all do in some sense because it's a very widespread idea. Well, that is actually not... Christian theology. That is not what the Jews believed, and that's not what the early Christians believed, and that's not what Paul is talking about here. The Gnostics, when they said that the body dies and releases the soul, and that the body is a prison of the soul, they were saying that the physical material world, including the human body, is fundamentally an evil thing. Therefore, you can do whatever you want to with it. Doesn't make any difference what you do in this world. Doesn't make any difference what you do in this body. And, and it's probably a good thing that this body dies so that we can go back and be with God, all right? Now, you can see why the Gnostics would say that, because these bodies uh, are born uh, as beautiful, wonderful things, and they grow up into magnificent things, and then everything goes downhill from there, okay? Physical evidence of that truth is right here in front of you, okay? <laughs> and the body eventually dies, and a dead body is a problem. It's not a pretty thing. It's not a pretty thing. So you can see why the Gnostics would think that. But what do we know about what the Jews said about the physical creation, including the human body? God created it all. Would God create something bad? God created it all and said, this is good. God created humanity, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, and said, this is good. And so the Jews believed that at the end of all history, God would, would recreate and redeem, in some sense, the physical creation. That the body's a good thing. That the human soul is not imprisoned in the human body, but that in fact the human person is one creation, one thing, physical as well as spiritual. And so the Jews had a long conversation. Some of them believed in, in a resurrection of the dead. But now after Jesus has appeared and Jesus shows back up in a body, then we have a whole different conversation to talk about. And that's part of what Paul is talking about here. Apparently some of the Corinthian Christians were really more Gnostic in their belief, and so they had no problem with what we would call rampant sexual immorality because what you do in your body doesn't make any difference. 
They had no problem with continuing essentially the pagan lifestyle because as far as they were concerned, they had accepted Jesus as the Savior. Whatever sin there was in this world, if there really is such a thing as sin, was taken care of. So let's eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we're going to die and our souls will be released and go back into heaven. That was kind of their attitude. That was not Paul's attitude at all. And so Paul tries to describe a little bit of the reality of the resurrection of the body. Okay? Let's talk specifically about what he says. The reason I chose this little selection from the longer conversation in 1 Corinthians 15 is because Paul, thinks, Paul gives us, I think, a, a beautiful, beautiful image and example, something that helps us understand what he's talking about. He talks about the image of the seed that dies in the ground and then is resurrected from the ground. How many gardeners do we have in this room? We have at least one master gardener. Where, where is she? We bow down to the master gardeners, yes? Right. Everybody knows about seeds, right? Everybody's had a chia pet before, right? The seed looks nothing like the plant into which it will grow. But the seed is the beginning of that plant. The seed and the plant are inextricably tied to each other. Paul says that's the way it is with our physical and then spiritual bodies. This body that you inhabit now is going to die like the seed and then God, by God's power, will resurrect that body. Not the physical body, okay? There's a difference between resuscitation of a dead body and resurrection of the dead. Okay, write that down in your notes. I think that's really helpful. And heaven help you to spell resuscitation. There, here we go. <laughs> the resuscitation of the body, the resuscitation of this body is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the resurrection of the dead. Okay? The best way to describe this is to talk about the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. In a way, we need to study about half of the New Testament just to have this conversation. But you will remember these passages. When Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, what was their invariable response? They didn't know who he was. And they discovered who he was. They, they recognized him eventually, and it was him. It was enough like him, the him that they had known before his death, that they knew it was him, but it was also different enough that they didn't quite get it. They didn't quite get it. We talked last week about, uh, in Luke, the passage we read was right after the, the, the appearance of Jesus to the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know who he was. They thought, you've hung with this guy for three years. If it had been his resuscitated body, they would have recognized him immediately. But that's not what we're told about Jesus' appearance. It was Jesus, but Jesus that comes back comes in and out of rooms that have locked doors, <laughs> Uh, the wounds are in his body. They're still visible. Uh, so there's, there's, there's a correspondence. There's a connection between the body we're given and the body that we have had. But Paul goes on to talk about the fact that, look, this physical body cannot live forever. No kidding, right? We have to be given a different body, a spiritual body. When God resurrects these bodies, okay, and transforms us into something new, this body actually, of course, goes away. That's all the physical evidence, right? 
You all have been with people who have died, okay? Have you ever had the opportunity to walk into the morgue or walk into uh, the, the medical laboratory and see what human bodies do and what they look like and what's going on with them after they're dead? It's absolutely fascinating. But eventually what happens to these bodies that we have? Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. They go away just like everything else physical. They go back into a different physical state. So God gives us a new body that is fit for living in heaven, fit for living forever. This is not this body that's going to go on. Paul makes a huge deal of this because if you say that God does not resurrect you, then we have a problem. The Gnostics believed, by the way, that when your soul, that little piece of divine stuff inside you, went back to be with God, that you sort of lost your personality. The person you were wasn't there anymore. And, and I don't know about you, but that's, that's kind of a sad thought. You know, I, I don't like myself totally, but I pr get along pretty well with myself, and I'd like to keep on going, you know? And, and most of you here, I'd like to meet you in heaven when things are over. In fact, all of you, that would be kind of fun, Right? Wouldn't you like to know people in heaven? And that's actually some of the evidence that we have. You know, as people are dying, they often see and are talking with people that are already there on the other side. They're not talking to just some amorphous, unidentifiable thing or being or it. They're talking to people. And so the Gnostics had it wrong as far as we're concerned. When we say God resurrects the body, God resurrects us and gives us a new mode or existence of being. You get that? Does that all make sense? In the Philippians passage, Paul talks about the glory question. Let's look back at that. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're expecting salvation. He's going to transform the body of our humiliation so that it may be conformed to the body of, of his glory. Glory is a fascinating term. It, it, it means things in Scripture that we usually don't mean when we're using the English word. The, the glory that we're talking about is the purpose. This is, this is us as we are meant to be. That's the body of our glory. In some sense, we are finally, fully ourselves, but it's us. Does that make sense to you? Now, in the midst, let's stop there for a second, and then I want to talk about the implications of this, not for living forever in heaven, but the implications of living here and now, okay? But let's, let's take some questions or, or thoughts about this, what I've just said, and, and kind of a description of what Paul talks about as the resurrection of the body. What, what do you think about all that? Are there some questions that pop up in your mind or, or ideas? Okay, good question. Are we resurrected on Judgment Day, right? Uh, that's a very good question. Some, some Christians in the past have believed that, um, and some still believe, that when we die, we go into sort of a state of limbo, kind of a, a, a sleep state where we're not aware of anything, and that on the final Judgment Day, that's the Resurrection Day, and, and everybody is resurrected in this new way with these new bodies, okay? And there's some stuff in, in the Scripture that kind of leads us to think that way, but there's also stuff in Scripture that leads us to say, no, that at the moment of our death, that God meets us there and gives us these newly resurrected bodies. The primary text for that is Jesus on the cross says to the, to the thief, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, my standard answer to that question, and I still like my standard answer, uh, is that um, it doesn't make any difference which it is, and we don't, we shouldn't, we don't need to worry about it uh, because we can't do anything about it. God's taking care of it. 
If I go to sleep, if you go to sleep for 800 million years and then wake up, it will be just like any other sleep. It will appear instantaneous to us, okay? Uh, personally, if I had to choose between the two, I would say it is instantaneous. But let's also remember that question comes from um, a perspective that is based in time. Okay, we wanna know how long are we gonna have to wait? Well, there is no how long with God because we're talking about eternity where time is not an important question. Um, and so it's a great question to ask. It's an important question to ask, I think. We should ask all of our questions about heaven and about the afterlife. Um, at the end of the day, we come back to, uh, a lot, in some ways, only a few certainties. Once, the only certainty in some sense is that God takes care of it, whatever it is. So good question, good question. Another thought back here, yes, Eloise. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, the earth will be, sounds like, resurrected and that we will have a new we will be living in our resurrected bodies on a new earth and a new heaven so, yes so how does that i mean it sounds physical so right. it's just kind of a new physicality right that it's we don't understand it does and let's remember as we're speaking of these things that are beyond the reality that we currently experience we can only speak about those things in terms of the reality that we know trying to describe another reality, okay? And so in some sense, all the language of scripture about the reality beyond is poetic, it's metaphorical, and we can't push it too, too hard to be extremely literal, okay? The, the new heaven and new earth, that language, uh, especially in Revelation, it's beautiful language. We read that often when we're celebrating a person's life at a memorial service or a funeral. Um, that gets at this, the idea, that goes back to the idea of Genesis. God created everything, everything got off track, and God is going to renew and redeem everything, a new heaven and a new earth. Even, you know, the vision of, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of the clouds. And, and some people would take that very literalistically, that this physical globe that we inhabit is going to be renewed and restored, and that's where we're going to live. Um, but you don't have to take it that literalistically, and I think it's a little bit dangerous to do that because we're talking about a category of being that's beyond anything that we totally understand. What we're really saying theologically is that God renews all things. God even renews and, and remakes and, and transforms into something different, something better, something more, but also related to what has been, and God does that even with the physical creation. Okay, it, that idea is grounded in Genesis theology that says God made this and it is good. And so just as with our bodies, you know, I, I don't know if there's going to be, you know, who was it? I was having a conversation about guacamole earlier this morning, okay? You know, there we go, there we go. You know, there's certainly gonna be guacamole in heaven, okay? And bluebell ice cream and golf and a few other things we can talk about, right? I, you know, I say that only half jestingly. Heaven's going to be magnificently glorious, and I can't imagine it without some magnificently glorious things of this world. And so when we say new heaven and new earth, we are affirming our Old Testament theology that says that what God made here is a good thing, and it corresponds to who God is. God reveals himself in all of that, especially us, okay? He reveals himself through us. His image is made into us. And so what heaven is going to be is going to, going to correspond to here, but it's not gonna be the same as here. 
I don't believe that they're in the same physical space as we understand physical space, that at some point down the line, God's going to poof, remake it all, right? I do believe that there's going to be a correspondence there, that I'm going to recognize you and you're going to recognize me. And then we'll sit down and share some guacamole and chips. And this is church, so we can't talk about margaritas. We'll talk about margaritas later on, right? Does that help answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yes. When the um, book of life is open Mm -hmm. and judgment comes, so if we're present with the Lord and then judgment comes, um, some of us will be leaving and some of us will be staying. Yeah, (laughs) sure, sure. Again, these are images, these are ways of, of trying to say things about God and our, and our reality and what we know of God uh, that have to be balanced with every other way of looking at it, right? Uh, the book of life, okay? Books are really important. You go back to ancient society, your name is written in a book. You're a citizen of Rome. You're this, you're that, okay? If you're in the book, you're great. If you're not in the book, you're toast, okay? That still happens. The book is electronic electronic now, right? You know, I've got my name in the book of life, my reservation for this flight or for that meal or for whatever it is, for moving into La Costa Glen. That's a way of saying that our place is assured, Okay, the judgment question, we talked about judgment earlier in this, in this series of, of, uh, of studies. The judgment question is all about the fact that God takes this world and this life very, very seriously. He is not a Gnostic. God doesn't say it doesn't make any difference what you do here. It does make a difference what you do here. And that is weighed, that is considered, that is looked at. So on the one hand, there is the judgment. On the other side, though, we look at who the judge is and what the judge has done. The judge is none other than the one who came to live our life with us and die a death for us to take care of us. And so we have to take those seemingly opposite things and hold them together in tension, okay? So people ask, well, when is the last judgment then? Does just God just save up all the souls until the last judgment? You know, there's, there's one big, huge courtroom scene, or are you judged immediately when you die? That comes back to, to Connie's observation. And these are all great questions because they're all issues raised in the scripture. Um, my final answer again is I don't know when it happens, and the question of when is not that important to me because, number one, when is a question of this existence. Number two, God has it taken care of. And I know that, that my judge is also my advocate, right? There's that image in the scripture. There are lots of different images, right? We got judges and lawyers in here, right? The one sitting on the bench peering down at me with the big black robe saying, I don't know if I'm going to accept you or not. That one, the, that image is that one comes down from, the, from the, the seat looking down on us, the judgment seat, and stands next to us as our lawyer, That's what advocate means. We still use that word sometimes to refer to lawyers. This is the one who's going to plead my case, right? And then we go into the image of God the Father sitting up there, the old man with the big white beard, and then his son who's given us saying, Dad, don't do that to this person. I took care of it, okay? Again, don't push that too far. It's the same God, but that's what we're talking about. Isn't this fun stuff? All of these things are, are, are packed into the conversation that Paul is having with the Corinthians. Now remember, a lot of the problem the Corinthians were having was because we're talking about a lot of theology here, a lot of the understanding of God and the world and everything else that arises from out of what we call the Old Testament. 
It's what Paul would call the Scriptures. And so Paul is having, in a sense, to teach Old Testament theology, Jewish theology, and then how Christians understand what all of that is about. He's having to start from ground zero. With the Jews, they didn't have to start from ground zero. With the Jews, they had to correct a lot of misunderstanding, but at least the Jews had some understanding of God the creator and the goodness of this creation and all of that. And so in today's world, where we live in a world that is influenced in, uh, very heavily, of course, by Christian theology, but it's also still very heavily influenced by pagan philosophy, right? The ideas of the Greeks and the Romans is still very, very popular today. And it, it's, a, it's an issue, it's a continual issue for the church to separate out what is actually good Christian theology, meaning the truth, and, and what is other stuff out there. I've been teaching about this now for over 40 years, and the question, and, and you know, I don't know if I've made a dent. <laughs> Me and 800 million other preachers, right? It, it's a, something we deal with all the time. I deal with it all the time, especially when we're doing funerals, because tons of people walk up to me at every funeral, say, you know, well, I'm, I'm certain that so-and-so is going to heaven because they were a really good person. And depending on my mood and the context of the situation, <laughs> I either say, yeah, yeah, I'm sure about that, or, you know, I say, no, you have no clue what this is about. And then we get into a conversation. Um, the other thing I hear from people is, you know, I know, that the, I know that they went straight to heaven, that their soul went straight to heaven. That's not what Christians believe, by the way. You do not have an automatically immortal soul that was given to you at the beginning of, of time or at the beginning of your or birth. The only reason you and I keep living is because God keeps us living. God is the one who grants us resurrection. Does that make sense to you? The idea of this immortal soul that's built into you, this immortal, indestructible soul, it's only indestructible if God says it is. God could make you and me disappear from all existence just like that, if God wanted to. There's nothing in you that's indestructible, but God keeps it going. That's what the resurrection is all about. Okay, now let's talk about the implication of that, because that's important, and that's one of the reasons that I added on, uh, as I looked back at this, um, added on the 58th verse, that's the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15, okay? Paul has continued the conversation, by the way, about the perishable body that becomes imperishable, right? That is transformed into a new thing, and then he says, therefore, my beloved, Anytime you get to a therefore, you've got to pay close attention. Paul's going to talk about the implication, the outcome of this conviction that we have about our resurrection into eternal life. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay? In the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul's talking about what we do in this life because of what we believe about life after this life here in this form is over. Excel, continue, persevere. The Gnostics and others like them said what you do in this life, in this body, really doesn't make any difference because it's all corrupt 
it's all going to be thrown in the, ha- in the trash heap. So do whatever you want. doesn't make any difference. But Christians, and Jews certainly, Christians would say, no, what I do in this life actually is of eternal significance because it corresponds to the life that I'm going to have in eternity. Your eternal life, your life with God has already begun. That brings me back to your comment. And we see that all the time, right? Absent from the body, but present with the Lord, okay? In a way, that's horrible theology. We see it everywhere, okay? Now, we understand what we're trying to say, right? You're not here in this body anymore, okay? And that's exactly right. Once you're dead, you're not here in this body anymore. It's one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen happen when I'm with people as they die. They're there, and then they're not there. It is the same physical substance It's the exact same physical substance, but there's something that happens and they're not there anymore. It's terrifying, it's mystifying, and in some sense, it's incredibly comforting and consoling to know that that person isn't in that body anymore because that body isn't doing very well. Do you wanna be stuck in a dead body for the rest of your life? Is that what a zombie is? I don't know what zombies are, but right? Okay, so when we say absent from the body, present with the Lord, we mean to say the person has gone on to be with the Lord. But the reason I would say it's also horrible theology is because if you believe Genesis, God created you and put you down here and said, I've given you this life and this body, and God says, I'm with you always. And Jesus says at the end of the story to the disciples, I am with you always to the close of the age. I'm present in this body right here, and so are you, and God is present with you. And so what you do right now is actually the same thing as what you're going to be doing in heaven. Does that make any sense to you? Heaven has already started for us. It's kind of messed up, and we don't get it right, and we can't see it perfectly, and sometimes we feel a long way removed from God. But Jesus was very clear. Jesus said to the disciples, remember what he started his preaching with? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is here. We don't need to wait for later to have the kind of life and to live the kind of life that God says is the only kind of life that you really can have. And so we are present in the body now. We are present in a different kind of body that corresponds to this body then and all the time. God is here with us and we are with God. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, to the Corinthians who are sleeping with whoever they want to sleep with whenever they want to sleep with and who are fighting with each other mercilessly because they say I have knowledge and you don't and they could care less about the unity of the body and who are fighting about whether they should eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. The Corinthians who are just continuing to live a lifestyle completely contrary to the Ten Commandments, completely contrary to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Paul says that's wrong. Because the life you've given right here, right now, is just as sacred, just as holy, just as much of God as the life that you're going to live later on, because it's the same life. Does that make sense to you? That's a huge difference in the way 
that many people look at the world. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm messing up this life, but I know eventually God's going to take me to be with heaven. So you just kind of resign yourself to living this life. This relates to the idea of the forgiveness of sins that we talked about last week, right? Repent and be forgiven and then begin living the new life that you're meant to live. That's the Judeo-Christian ethic. That makes this life and this world a holy place. When we say it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, why would we create a new earth, right? Well, because we really liked the old earth, right? When you renew something, you know, you take that 1956 Chevy Bel Air two-door coupe that's rusted and falling apart, and you restore it because that's a really cool car. That's a guy thing to say, isn't it? (laughs) Whatever. Is this making sense to you? The idea of the resurrection of the body. We say that in, uh, in, the, in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And some people say, ooh, no, that's a terrible thing. Why would you want to resurrect this, right? I, I, the Gnostics and many people in ancient societies had sort of this moral aversion to the body, right? Baby, baby bodies are pretty cool, but they can also be pretty smelly and problematic at times, can't they? Okay, and then after that, human bodies grow up and, you know, we do all sorts of things to try to keep them looking beautiful, whatever our standard of beauty is, okay, but human bodies are fundamentally a problem. We understand that, and so the Gnostics said the body is an issue, the body is a problem, it's corrupt, get away from it, but Christians, along with Jews, would say, no, the human body, all physical creation included, not just our bodies, is a beautiful thing, a gift of God, an expression of God. Therefore, what we're doing in our bodies now is important. Let me stop there a second. You guys talk to me for a while. Questions, thoughts? Yes? Yeah, yeah. Good, oh, good question. Good question. When a baby dies, when a child dies, do they become a child in heaven? Do they always remain as a child? Yes, yes. A fascinating question. Great question. Um. Uh, the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> but I think there's a longer answer to it, okay? I, and that longer answer relates to some of the things I've said. Um, I've asked that question a lot, not about, well, about children, okay, but also about other folks. I mean, let, let's look at, you know, Marilyn Monroe, okay? Now, is Marilyn Monroe, as that image of Marilyn Monroe that we have, is she going to be walking around in heaven? And then, this is really dangerous territory, but I think you love me, so I'll say it anyway. Some of us who don't look like Marilyn Monroe anymore are going to be walking around in heaven the way we are. Do you you want that competition? (laughs) Right? Right? My first wife died when she was 29 years old. Is she still going to be 29 years old? and I'm going to be 89 years old, you know, and then there's the question of what she and Helen going to talk about, right? That this is, have you ever worried about these things? You think you've had nightmares, let me just tell you. There was a, Jesus doesn't talk specifically about the child question. He does talk about the marriage question. He's asked that question. Remember, someone says, you know, this woman is married to one man, and he dies, and then she marries his brother, and he dies, and she, she marries seven brothers, okay, right? Think of the inheritance that woman has piled up after all that. Um, okay, and so the question is, whose wife is she in heaven? 
And Jesus said, you're crazy. <laughs> he said, there is neither taking nor giving in marriage in heaven. That's my out, thank you, God. Um, but what Jesus means to say is in heaven, we're talking about a whole different way of existing and being. And so the 18-month child that I've buried, right, or the 29-year-old, or the 109-year-old, I don't know what they're going to look like, but I'm going to know it's them. And they're going to know it's me. And we're going to know each other as the beings that God made us to be. And it'll be fascinating to find out. It's good to ask that question. I think, I think it's wonderful to ask all these questions and think about all these issues and then begin to understand there's no way we can resolve them. I cannot find a way mentally to resolve, you know, babies around there in heaven, right? You know, on both my, uh, and my mother's family in her generation and my father's family in his generation, their families both had uh, uh, infants that died in childbirth, okay? Are they going to know their brothers and sisters? You know, how, do, how does a, a, a five-minute-old baby relate to an 89-year-old man and their brothers? Thinking about it is important, but the place to which it should lead us is the place where we say, we don't know, God hasn't, has it taken care of, and all the ways that we talk about the, the, the new heaven and the new earth and the new bodies that we're going to have and the streets paved with gold and guacamole and ice cream, all that's just our way of saying it's going to be incredibly magnificent and beautiful beyond our imagination and aren't we glad that God assures us of that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we know it. Is that a satisfactory answer to you? Of course, of course. It should pop into everyone's mind. We should think about these heavenly things and then come back to the place where we say, wow, isn't God incredible? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other questions, other thoughts? Yes, Terry. Well, I have a thought. Um, I'm in a small world of, I don't know a lot of people, but getting to heaven and assuming Abraham Lincoln's there, uh -huh. <laughs> so my thought is, will we see him? Uh -huh. <laughs> or is our world still going to be small that we're just with the people that we've come in contact with in our life? That's a fact. I was thinking about that question earlier this morning. Not, not <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, um, but a few other people. It's like, I have a lot of people in my life. Are, are there more people that I'm going to know? Will I eventually get to meet all the people that have ever lived? All right, I have my list of the ones that I want to talk with, and Abe is right up there at the top, right? You know, Abe and George and Ben and, and Tom and those guys, and, you know, then there's a whole lot of other historical characters. Uh, but then I have to say, wow, they're going to be incredibly busy because everybody wants to talk with them, right? There's, there's you know, 7.4999 billion people right now on the face of the earth who are incomprehensible and unknowable to me, uh, and I'm not going to, you know, stand in line waiting to visit with them, but maybe I'll come across them and they don't know me. Who knows? It's a fascinating question, isn't it? Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating question. A related question to that is the people that I don't ever want to see again. <laughs> what are we going to do with that? When I was in midwifery school in Hyden, Kentucky, mm -hmm. in the heart of Appalachia, um, the, 
there were many people there who believed in infant damnation. In mm -hmm. other words, if you weren't old enough to accept Christ as your savior when you died, you were damned. Mm -hmm. And what a sad and troubling belief system that was. But that was what they were taught yeah. in their churches. Yeah, in their churches, yeah. And then corresponding to that thought too is the idea that um, you baptize a baby as quickly as you can because if they're not baptized, then they're going to hell, right? Um, we need, I think we always, uh, this is a principle that I try to follow when I'm thinking about a hard question. And I try to think of, when I, when I hear something that sounds completely unreasonable um, or see something that just makes no sense to me whatsoever, right? Like a human body that has 82 different pieces of metal implanted in it and somebody thinks that's beautiful. I, I always try to think, what's behind this? Why is this here, Okay. And the idea of, of infants going to hell as well as to heaven is trying to lift up the importance and the beauty of our knowing God in Jesus Christ, right? Um, and yet if we go all the way down that road, we go to a place that I don't think we can go. Uh, does it make any logical sense whatsoever that a loving God who bothered to create this child is now going to damn this child just because this child didn't have an opportunity to even know anything about Jesus, okay? Now, you can extend that question because on the face of the planet Earth today, there are at least a billion people, we're told, who also have never heard about Jesus and never will in their lifetime. That's part of the great missionary impulse is to keep telling people about Jesus, okay? Uh, there's a difference in age between them and an infant, but it's the same question. Is God going to, to consign to eternal punishment and pain and agony somebody that's never even heard about him? Go to the first chapter of Romans. We were just there a couple weeks ago in it, right? And then go later on into Romans. Paul talks about the fact that God has built something of his knowledge, something of his truth into every human being, and every human being has an opportunity to respond to what they know of God in some way, shape, or form, okay? Go beyond that question. It's ultimately a question of salvation that you're talking about, right? Can God or will God save someone who has not said the words, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay, can God do that? Well, Paul talks, I can't tell you the citation right now, but Paul talks about those who say, Lord, Lord, I believe in you, I trust in you, but God knows in your heart he, that we don't. So on the question of salvation, I come back to this issue and I say, number one, God can do whatever God wants to do. Okay, that's a pretty important thing to affirm, I think, right? That's the fundamental issue in some ways with our sin is we want to do what we want to do, but God gets to do what God wants to do. And if God wants to save everything he's ever made, including Adolf Hitler, including Osama bin Laden, if God wants to do that, then God has the right to do that, and it is the right thing to do if God decides to do it, okay? When we say that God might damn that infant child, we also are saying that God gets to do what God wants to do. And this is a conversation about the sovereignty of God. In the sovereignty of God and his design for all things, if it's his will that some be damned forever, then God gets to do that, and that also glorifies God. We have to give God that option as well. You cannot limit God. That's what we try to do. 
When we say, that child didn't say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, or that pagan off in that rainforest that never even met anybody else except the 30 people they lived with their whole life, that person is damned forever. You are limiting God. Now, we point to Scripture and say, but Scripture says you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It does say that. But the Scripture also says that God deals mercifully and justly with those who don't even know the Lord Jesus Christ, including all the people that lived, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. So it's important to affirm the importance of Jesus, and the way I look at it is that God does save everyone in and through Jesus Christ, because in and through Jesus Christ, God defeated death, God defeated evil, and God said, ain't nothing going to stop me if I don't want to be stopped. And so we cannot limit God. We also cannot limit God by saying that God must save everyone. That also limits God. Don't tell God what to do. Do what God has told you to do and what Paul comes back to and what all of the Scripture comes back to and what Jesus comes back to. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment. And we should do way more to spend more of our time worrying about how I'm going to love you and you today and put clothes on you and put food in your belly and take care of you in prison and let what's going to happen to you in eternity be God's business, period. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul would say. Abound in the work of the Lord. Excel in the work of the Lord. Well, what's the work of the Lord? It's telling people the good news of Jesus Christ, that God's already taken care of death. God's already taken care of evil. And look, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Just start living your life in a whole new way. And then we have to model that for people. The world would be a whole lot better off if churches spent less time talking about who's going to heaven and who's not, and more time dealing with the people that are right there in front of them. And now I'm preaching at you, I know. It's time for the offering. Yes, Vicki. Um, this kind of ties in to some of the comments that the ladies have asked or commented on. 19 years ago when I was in hospice with my older sister, when I wasn't at her bedside, I would spend time in the chapel, and it was, as you can imagine, a pretty difficult time. And one of the hospice nurses gave my family this book written by hospice nurses, to help family members who were watching the approaching transition. So I had been reading this book and it talked, as you mentioned, how people that have already passed come back to be with the person or the person that is dying can mm -hmm. see them. Mm -hmm. And my older sister was a twin mm -hmm. and her twin sister died at birth. Ah. So Lori was nonverbal, but I remember I was so fascinated by this concept so one night when she was awake and up <clears throat> and I was talking to her and she could nod, I remember asking her, Lori, is Linda here? Can you see Linda? And she absolutely nodded. Uh -huh. I said, she's here? And uh -huh. she nodded. I said, is Grandma and Grandpa here? And she nodded. So, you know, all it establishes is just all that we don't know and all that is sometimes revealed to us to give us the peace when we need that peace or need that help. But the, the comments about the babies, I mean, if, if God knows every hair on every one of our heads, he certainly knows the babies, and he has you know, divine omnipotence. So at the end of the day, while it's fun for us humans, and, and I'm one, to be fascinated and contemplate and analyze and 
in our intellect try to process it. You've said this before, we don't know what we don't know. Right. <laughs> so at the end of the day, focus on the here and the now. But I just wanted to share that story. I just yeah, thought it yeah, was that's very beautiful. fascinating to think, here's this infant. My sister never met her twin sister when she yeah. was born. She died at birth. Yeah. But yet, she recognized her. She was there to help her go to the next place. So yeah. in my kingdom, there are many mansions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think God gives us, maybe not with everyone, uh, but God gives us that comfort and assurance of the people that we know and love the most um, who are there. It's a fascinating thing. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, we better stop. It's 10.15, and there's some, one of God's great gifts is food. So <laughs> thank you for sharing all of this. This, is, this has been fascinating. I'm happy to visit some more with you after we break up. God be with us. Continue to convince us of your undying love and the lives that you give us here and now and always and forever with you. May we live in such a way that shares that love with others today. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you.